This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music to maps, money and modernity, this is where ideas come together. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm your host, uh, Eric Jones, and with me in uh, virtual studio is uh, Mesrob Bartavarian. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Eric. Glad to be here. Where are you Where are you holed up right now, currently? Well, you know, this kind of uh, the vastness of upstate New York, Ithaca, <laughs> lots of gorges and waterfalls. Yeah, I mean, so the fall is world. amazing there, right? Like... It, it is. It's getting a bit chilly, but uh, yeah. I mean, you you guys in uh, in Illinois probably have it a little worse, I would think. But yeah, yeah or yeah, without the gorges and the and the okay. so yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, you know we'll 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 we're okay, and I guess on on both fronts. Um, yeah, Mister uh, mm-hmm. Rob is uh, he uh, is going to talk to us about the. Um, U.S. Uh, Philippine military relationship, among other things, and you just gave a, a a great brown bag for us. And uh, now you're currently a visiting fellow at the at, at Cornell Southeast Asia program. Is that right? That's right. Yes. How, how long have you been there? Uh, well, I started it off just about a year ago now, end of October 2019, and I'm there through April uh, 2021. So, wherever the wind takes me thereafter, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, it's a crazy. Um, Right, the the uh, twenty twenty for the for for the yeah, many things, yeah. but the the the, the postdocs jobs uh, position these are all uh, to the wind. So um, yeah, we mm-hmm. uh, we were excited for your for your work, especially um, and I think it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty timely and important um, right now to to think about the special relationship between the U.S. and and the Philippines. So can you um, you know some of our listeners might not know. Um, the, the the scale and scope of the 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 U.S. Um, relationship with the Philippines it's it's sort of hard engagement. Can you give us the back of the napkin, like the one minute, like uh, how long has the U.S. been seriously engaged in the Philippines, and what does it look like? Sure. Uh, well, the U.S. has been seriously engaged with the Philippines really since the moment of its colonial entry in 1898, and then of course with the uh, U.S.-Philippine War, or Philippine-American War, as it's popularly known, from 1899 to uh, 1902. Generally speaking, however, there is, uh, I think, an overemphasis, um, naturally it's very important, but I, I think still an overemphasis on the relationship between U.S. politicians and civilian uh, political elites at the congressional and presidential level in particular, on both sides of the Pacific. Um, do you think do you think that's a bias, sort of a historian kind of great man bias of? Uh, uh yeah, well, yeah. Th- th- there is certainly some of that. In a sense, it's easier to study if you narrow it down to um, inter interrelationships between personalities, say like MacArthur and Kesson um, and things like this. Surely, yes, yes. But uh, there are deeper structural and institutional relationships which I think merit much uh, further consideration particularly over time, not just focusing on a specific time period, say like uh, the initial colonial phase, 1899 to 1913, or say the Marcos era, 1965 to 1986, uh, across time relationships, over time relationships between American institutions and Philippine institutions merit much deeper consideration. Yeah. And, the, the, and as you point out, the kind of relationships that that will be here after you know a particular political leader on the, in the Philippines or in the United States, and and will probably transcend and 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 continue on after. Not that they can't be changed, but um, they're, they're, sure. it's bigger than one person. Absolutely, it's much much harder to alter uh, policy established policy level interactions than it is to change political leaders naturally, and um, they have undergone these policy level initiatives and interactions have undergone numerous. Uh, political ruptures over the course of more than a century now, well over a century now. And uh, my under- my guess is, you know, one can only guess, but is that these relationships at the policy and institutional level, if they go, they will fade over time. They will not end in an abrupt fashion. Well, it, but that's well, as, as you as you point out, the and we'll talk about later, but the, the Philippine military especially has become quite adept at, at sort of 
rolling with the times and adapting and, and um, sort of yes. be, being what it needs to be to, to, to survive. Um, maybe um, I thought an interesting, uh, interesting sort of context that you gave was the uh, late 19th century Philippines where there's, you know, various types of uh, militarized figures uh, roaming around mm -hmm. and kind of the, your conception of, military labor and this subaltern category that inhabits. So tell us about that. Surely, surely, yes. Now, again, when one focuses on labor in general as a subject in the social sciences or any any humanities field, there is a tendency to view labor as something that stands in resistance to uh, elites or colonial states or national states. Labor generally is radicalized in the literature, with, with exceptions, certainly. But when one is dealing with military labor, in particular in this period, what you find in the late 19th and early 20th century Philippines is that, yes, there are forms of military labor that are anti-colonial, certainly, anti-state, anarchist, millenarian, sectarian, whatever they may be. But there is also a form of military labor that establishes its dominance over the military field, if you like, or the in the realm of militarism, right? It establishes a clear dominance, and that is the military of the American colonial state. Uh, not at once, but gradually, it is able, through various, uh, you know, pacification campaigns, uh, combat operations, to contain and to limit rival forms of militarization or militarism and assert a kind of dominance over the archipelago that ensures uh, the political privileges and prerogatives of the American uh, imperial managers and the national indigenous uh, Filipino elite. Yes. And, and one way that you, uh, several that you point out that the U.S. is able to kind of divide and conquer is they use the, the, the Philippine scouts, the Philippine constabulary. Um, how, how are they created and how do they function to, to the benefit of, of Philippine elites and, and the U.S. military? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, initially, right off the bat in 1899, local commanders uh, on the ground, American military commanders, realize that they are entering basically an alien space in their mind. It's something that they don't quite comprehend and they have to link up and uh, utilize and mobilize indigenous uh, personnel to help facilitate, map, uh, surveil, and repress. And they engage various groups that they feel in their minds, not entirely unjustifiably, I must say. They don't invent these differences. They do encounter uh, ethno-regional um, differences on the ground that they uh, certainly aggravate and encourage, but they didn't form these differences. They encounter certain ethnic groups like uh, the Makabebe, like uh, the Ilocanos, who feel not very attached to the Philippine revolutionary experiment, and they tend to um, overrepresent them in these various scout units. Now, the term scouts, of course, comes from the American West, in a very different context, I have to say. Okay. There's been too much uh, in the literature connecting the American West with the Philippine-American War. These are, at base, very two very different things. But nevertheless, the terminology is one that uh, Americans use what they're familiar with in terms of term yeah. terminology. We use scouts in the American West, so we use them here in the Philippines, too. But the purposes to which they are utilized are, are radically I guess say both of those, so both you, of the, yeah, the, the like, the, using using ethnic, ethnic minorities like Ilocanos or or using um, sort of indigenous Philippine um, military to, to sort of replace uh, as, a, as a stand-in or the for, for what would have been maybe... Uh, <laughs> Uh, American forces. Um, the, these are very, you know, if you think of, or maybe mm -hmm. our listeners might think of the Vietnam War, Vietnamization, uh, the use of Hmong, and uh, is are 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 lessons learned in the Philippines that are later going to be deployed um, for? Um, I mean, that's mm -hmm. a bit outside of your mm -hmm. your your question here, but uh, well, well, yeah, sure, no, but the Hmong in general don't. They're radically different and entirely distinct from the uh, the kin, the, the Vietnamese, uh, uh, lowland Vietnamese. The, uh, when it comes to the Ilocanos, they are Christian, they're Catholic, and they're lowland. 
but by and large, what you find is they are they are more inclined towards migratory okay. labor. Dan Dopers at uh, UW Madison actually equates the Ilocanos with the Irish in the British Empire. Uh, the Ilocanos in the American Empire play a similar kind of function. Uh, they're not tribal in that sense. They are an ethnic community that is not so, I mean, they couldn't care one way or the other, quite frankly, in, in certain respects. There are exceptions, Antonio Luna and, and various commanders of Ilocano origin, but they are less attached to uh, the, the revolutionary project. And of course, the Americans encourage this or widen this detachment uh, on the ground by arming them disproportionately and trusting them disproportionately. And throughout Philippine uh, military history, you do see an overrepresentation of Ilocanos in the AFP. Of the sort of non-Tagalog. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Fidel Ramos, for example, is an Ilocano. That's interesting. So the the as the um, as the first half of the 20th century unfolds, um, you know the the uh, the scouts and the constabulary um, work has been done on sort of the role they they take in, um, especially in sort of indigenous suppression uh, in, in the Philippines. Um, so that we get closer to your your uh, your time period uh, at at question here in. In, in World War II, um, how do the how do they how do they side? What what happens with these group? You know, the U.S. is forced out. What, when the Japanese come in, where where do the where do the scouts and the constabulary and the these armed groups groups on the ground fall? Mm-hmm. So generally speaking, uh, you find that the constabulary, as a call a kind of uh, oligarchic uh, defense force, by and large, large numbers of the indigenous Philippine elite collaborate with the Japanese, and they bring their soldiers with them. These constabularymen are the oligarchy soldiers, and they tend to okay. side with the Japanese. The scouts, who have a deeper relationship and a more lasting relationship <clears throat> with the United States, because after all, remember, the Philippine scouts were a wing of the United States Army. Uh, they are okay. more heavily represented. Again, you, you always find exceptions, but they're more heavily represented in the resistance movements. You find them in these guerrilla bands, which are continually supported by the United States. You know, the U.S. lands weapons via submarines and things like this, various covert operations. So they and, and they're and they're getting they're getting training. Like I mean, it's a similar military experience, right? They're they're organized. Sure, sure. Even I mean, yeah, indeed, indeed. They're they're a conventional military, but during the Japanese occupation, they become a guerrilla force, in some instances, even commanded by American officers who get stranded in the Philippines and uh, organize various indigenous units to continue the fight against the Japanese, albeit, interestingly enough, uh, these these former scouts who become guerrilla uh, are less aggressive and active in fighting the Japanese than the Hukpalaps, these more uh, leftist um, I don't want to say communist, but certainly leftist yeah. agrarian uh, reformist groups that want to uh, to show the United States that, you know, or, or prove to the United States that they're worthy of consideration economically and politically by fighting against Japanese. They can demonstrate that they are on the right side. And when the U.S. comes back, as I think was very obvious that, that they would certainly by about 1943, when the U.S. comes back, they will uh, reform institute structural reforms in favor of agrarianist and uh, rural uh, demands in which wealth is distributed downward rather than upward. And, and the, the, the hook, uh, um, the, you know, the millenarian sort of left-leaning branded as communist, uh, they, they would, of course, um, fall, fall victim to sort of major power politics in terms of, uh, you know, focus shift of of the United States in 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 the Cold War, um, the, the U.S. and its in its hegemonic position as it as it changes and it as it, as it ascends after World War II, how does that how does that morph the approach that it takes in the Philippines? The United States takes in the Philippines. Absolutely, yes, yes. I mean, by and large, or actually without doubt, the United States becomes the hegemon in the Asia Pacific by 1945. And in order to maintain and sustain that hegemony, it needs a series of military bases, uh, physical structures that are embedded in uh, foreign uh, countries, foreign geographies, 
which naturally would uh, create questions about the, the compromising of sovereignty, infringements on Philippine sovereignty through US, US military, uh, military bases. Again, unlike in, uh, in Thailand, say in the 1960s, where the bases were built, maintained and sustained by the US, but always Thai. There was no question of that in Thailand. In the, in the Philippine case, the bases are US bases. And uh, that would have raised all kinds of questions yeah. from an open uh, democratic political system. Hence, the United States uh, reconstitutes the authoritarian and narrow elite democracy that had prevailed in the Philippines in the 1920s, 30s. Uh, in exchange for, you be good to us, we say to the Philippine political elites, we'll be good to you, we will uh, protect you from those elements which might want to redistribute wealth and promote greater levels of social equality. Of course, the U.S. doesn't like the hooks either because they know that if political figures associated or affiliated with them enter the uh, electoral uh, system and, and achieve senatorial, congressional, or indeed maybe even ministerial status, uh, they will question the U.S. military bases in the Philippines. So it's a, uh, it's a yeah. double win, if you like. The Philippine elites want to maintain their socioeconomic privileges and benefits that largely exclude subaltern social orders. And the United States wants to prevent uh, the, the accession to power of political figures that might endanger its base structure in the country. There are economic concerns for the U.S. too, but they're very marginal in comparison, I think, to these much larger um, geopolitical when, and concerns. When you say large, uh, maybe how, how big is places like Clark Air Base, Subic Bay? Like what, what is the scale we're talking about? Massive, massive, massive. Clark Air Base, uh, certainly by the 1960s, had achieved uh, a size that was actually larger than the state of Singapore. Wow. So just to give you some sense of comparison, uh, part of that was um, gunnery ranges in which U.S. aircraft were free to engage in live fire exercises. Uh, Subic is interesting because Olongapo, the town of Olongapo, was basically a base town, an entire Philippine town invented to service the um, entertainment needs, shall we say, nice. of, the, uh, of the naval personnel at that time, things like prostitution, temporary wives, um, bars, uh, resorts of various kinds. And also these bases, of course, this is something newer in the literature, were very uh, environmentally damaging. Because again, you're operating in a place that isn't the US, you can drop all kinds of weapons or dump all kinds of waste that you wouldn't you might not want to drop in in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, yeah. so that, that sort of thing. Uh, it's easier to operate and it's easier to pollute these places simply because they're not the U.S. and the Philippines is led by a political elite that won't question. These kinds to of to say nothing to have a, a major, you know, to hold in a forward operating base um, in the in the Pacific Rim that's sort of you know right next to these yes. huge theaters of operation. Absolutely. Absolutely. In terms of uh, refurbishment, resupply, things like this, Clark and Subic are massively involved in the Korean and the Vietnam Wars, which, if you put all these conflicts together, went on for over 20 years. So uh, depending upon how you want to, to, to count it out. Um, I, I would say that the U.S. We're not we're not launching, say, like. B-52 strikes on a regular basis of North Vietnam from, from Clark. That, that's, that doesn't really happen. But, I mean, there might have been some instances of which I'm unaware. But uh, we largely do that sort of thing from places like Guam and Thailand, which, which is yeah. much closer to, to Vietnam. But still, in terms of refurbishment, in terms of staging. resupply and reinforcement, yes, the staging area, Clark and Subic are massively, massively involved. In these two conflicts, Korea and uh, and um, the Vietnam, the Second Indochina War, to put it more accurately, uh, and they continue to be involved right through their closure, right through the end of the Cold War, uh, in various uh, uh, naval exercises, saber rattling against the Vietnamese, 
after they have um, conquered South Vietnam, Clark and Subic are seen as, uh, because as you, as you may know, the Soviet Union opens military bases in Vietnam after, uh, in the late 1970s. And in order to counter this, the very liberal administration of, of Jimmy Carter counters this by deepening the U.S. commitment of Clark and Subic, to, to Clark and Subic. So it's a kind of strategic balancing act. The Soviets are deepening their presence in Vietnam. We must further deepen and secure our foothold in, in Clark and Subic. As a you, you, following on that, and you mentioned, you know, the the way that like the the um, hook, uh, the the wor- worrying um, part of the democrat democratic experiment is that, you know, these people can get in and ask questions and 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 uh, make it make it difficult or unmanageable to to cede Philippine yeah. sovereignty, argue, sovereignty arguably. Um, it, it's an obvious question to say like the dictatorships are much more useful. Than democracies, if you're going to enforce your sure. geopolitical will, so, but give us a sense of how that how that plays out in 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 the Philippines. And um, I think you know like sometimes students might be shocked that the U.S. would support uh, you know a, a dictator, um, uh, and and how, how could that happen? Um, maybe less less shocking now, yes. but uh, yes, but yes, I guess get, explain that for us. Well, mm-hmm. Happily. Now, uh, there was a wonderful book written in shortly after the collapse of the Marcos regime in 1987, Waltzing with a Dictator, uh, written by Raymond Bonner, a marvelous investigative reporter, a very rare thing nowadays, I'm sad to say. But he says very uh, plainly that American military bases are conducive to dictatorships or are conducive to authoritarian regimes. Because one simply cannot risk larger geostrategic concerns of the United States, the whims and wishes of a messy, loud, and uh, unpredictable. So you're saying democracy. that, that, that Indeed, I would... the U.S. is going to put up with more from a um, from an authoritarian regime if it's seen as the in, in cost benefit. Well, we can't risk this larger. Seen, is that is indeed, that how it works? Indeed. Geostrategic concerns trump democratic concerns. They they and I think this is true right through the Cold War in any number of areas and after. I mean, you you tend to see areas with Japan and South Korea being very important exceptions to this, at least in in recent times, certainly. But where you do see military bases elsewhere, such as in Central America, for example, you do tend to see very oppressive authoritarian regimes uh, in those sorts of countries. And the Philippines certainly was no exception to this at this time. Why should we chance uh, losing all the money and resources we've sunk into these bases by permitting a democratic uh, experiment to take hold? Now, of course, they, uh, this, I don't wanna say that the US is solely responsible for the rise of Ferdinand Marcos, but without the US, backing Marcos. I certainly don't think his regime would have lasted as long as it did. His ability to illegally re-elect himself and then chuck elections out entirely in 1972, I would be hesitant to think he would have done that or been able to have done that without very firm backing by the U.S., which even though the Vietnam War is winding down at the early 1970s, they still need the Philippines because they want to maintain uh, American power in the Asia Pacific, not so much through land forces in mainland Southeast Asia, but through naval and air forces in island Southeast Asia, yeah. the Philippines, of course, also Indonesia as a kind of strategic sea lanes that are going to be open to the U.S. Navy in in the event of a, a, a great power yeah, so, conflict. So, yeah. so I guess say more about that after after Vietnam and the um, U.S. Southeast Asia Cold mm-hmm. War focus, you know, shifts from mainland Southeast Asia to the Pacific Rim and island world. Um, mm-hmm. the, the Pacific Rim strategy in general, what is that? And then maybe the way that U.S. and oligarchic and um, armed forces of the Philippine interests kind of overlap each other in that pursuit. Sure, sure, sure. This uh, special relationship continues, even though ostensibly the U.S. is disengaging from Southeast Asia. But I do stress again, 
it's disengaging from mainland Southeast Asia. And it's not so much disengaging, which is the language we heard at that time. It was relocating its power, recalibrating yeah. its power to a potentially less uh, open-ended commitment. In other words, we have a fixed set of structures in the Philippines. We don't have this open-ended land war on the Asian land mass. We have a fixed set of structures that have to be defended and from which power can be projected outward. And of course, if you use naval power and air power, you don't have to deal with all kinds of things like drafting hundreds of thousands of Americans into the U.S. armed services and sending them to fight an endless war overseas. It's easier to project power via these force structures, naval and air force structures. They're run by and large by professional trained uh, okay. officers. They're more heavily represented in the Air Force and in the Navy. You don't have to use 19-year-old conscripts from the Midwest and the South who have no real deep commitment or understanding of the conflict. Are they brought over to train in the U.S.? The Philippine military? The, the elites? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There is a, a whole series of exchanges between the Philippine military and the United States over time. Really beginning, uh, well, beginning uh, since before decolonization itself. I mean, Philippine military officers do see the United States as a highly prestigious point in which they can uh, obtain military degrees and military training. Uh, for a Philippine military officer to go to West Point or the, um, the uh, Naval Academy in Annapolis, these things are something that they very much strive for. It's kind of an I Ivy mean, League and, and military uh, yeah. endorsement. Indeed, indeed, a, a kind of foreign Ivy League military. As many, as many uh, civilian uh, foreign elites come yeah. and, and get an education in Ivy League schools in the U.S. today. Uh, and more interestingly, if you look at the Philippine Military Academy, this is a subject that's been very well analyzed, I think, by Alfred McCoy. It emulates the West Point uh, curriculum and experience and uniforms and rituals and ceremonies and parades. Uh, they mimic okay. the, the uh, U.S. military elite in their own uh, national military academy. So, yes. so um, authoritarian uh, government, especially typified by maybe Marcos, best, um, worst, that uh, <laughs> it, um, yes, a, yes. A, a strange thing, or, or or maybe not, happens where that as you talk about that um, that movements like people power, and I guess maybe tell us what that is, and and that that, that actually the mm -hmm. military is much more um, nimble and uh, factional. That that at, at at times that it even plays into the people. It, it can put its finger on the pulse of um, the, what's happening. Uh, the winds of change. If I can add another metaphor, but it, it it senses those and is able to able to adjust. And that, that you you wouldn't think that it's not it's not a it's not a it's not a monolith. The Philippine military is that right? Absolutely, absolutely. By the late 1970s, certainly by the early 80s. Uh, the Philippine military had, in fact, become extremely factionalized. Uh, there is a wing under Fabian Ver uh, that sides entirely with the regime. Their sole reason for being is to defend their privileges within the okay. regime and to defend the regime that gives them their privileges. There is another faction that is coalescing at this time and is later joined by uh, it, it's uh, it coalesces around Fidel Ramos. And it's later joined by Juan Ponce Enrile, who was at that time the Minister of Defense, uh, a civilian, but nevertheless Minister of Defense, who um, saw that as the regime was collapsing, uh, defending the regime would, in the long run, actually endanger the benefits and privileges of the armed forces of the Philippines. Uh. Therefore, they have to detach themselves from the regime and side with a rival civilian elite that can combat the communist insurgency more effectively, a communist insurgency which by the mid-1980s had become certainly probably one of the largest uh, in Asia at that time, no question, and was beginning to look like it might entire, it had already partially taken over large swathes of the archipelago, 
but entirely take over much larger regions of the archipelago, albeit um, I'm not sure that the uh, communist, the, the New People's Army, the communist New People's Army was ever in a position to conquer Manila. They certainly could have entirely ejected uh, the national government from white ways of the archipelago had the insurgency uh, gone on. And the regime would have collapsed, I think, under its own weight already, had not uh, the AFP preempted that by uh, people power. So um, in uh, the sort of the, the people power movement brings an end to um, a, a certain form of mm. government in the Philippines. Um, but under, say, under like Ramos in the, in the 90s, um, a phenomenon that you that you describe as um, um, Praetorianism and indirect Praetorianism sort of uh, emerged. Can yeah. what um, say a bit about Ramos and maybe and and, and about these uh, these concepts that you're um, discussing? Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. So Fidel Ramos is a West Point graduate, uh, an honorary member of the Philippine okay. Military Academy as well, which, as I said, is a is a carbon not carbon, but sort of certainly an, an a national military uh, academy that widely emulates the uh, the West Point structure curriculum and things like this, who considered himself to be a professional soldier. I mean, if you read his statements and all of that, he's he claims apolitical uh, uh, credentials. However, in 1972, Ramos becomes the head of the Philippine Constabulary, the most politicized wing at that time of the armed forces of the Philippines. Really? And he begins to cultivate a network, a core of officers around himself that contests the dominance of the Ver faction. And eventually, uh, you could say maybe he, he just lucked out. He guessed yes. right. The timing was he right. He saw that the Marcos, yeah, the timing was right. He saw that the Marcos regime was basically on its way out, whether he liked it or not. And he took his faction into the people power uprising that uh, peacefully, remarkably, and almost miraculously, peacefully toppled uh, the Marcos regime at that time. However, uh, at the same time, there are certain institutional interests that he defends and maintains because those institutional interests bring all kinds of privileges to the military at large. Uh, he wants to combat the communist insurgency. He doesn't want to deal with the the NPA, the New People's Army, through peace talks. He wants to deal with them through counterinsurgency, through military operations. And he wants to sustain the U.S., the, the linkages with the United States, because all kinds of weapons transfers and training programs continue uh, right across the 1986 divide. Indeed, in some senses, even accelerate because we no longer have this ogre Marcos that is causing all kinds of congressional rumblings. Why are we supporting this, uh, you know, corrupt, sclerotic? What, what is the fate of the, what, uh, so you, you have, you know, General Ramos, uh, President Ramos and in power, what happens in the, the bases and how is that thought of in the, in, in this sure, period? Yes. Yes. It's true that uh, because of the ending of the cold war, the United States does shift its emphasis. It no longer sees the bases as an essential asset. And largely, I think, because the U.S. was so uh, blatantly, almost automatically backing Marcos to the hilt for so long, for 20 years, it generated a tremendous amount of resentment. Those became a symbol like Marcos of the... Absolutely. Absolutely. The bases are the reasons we had to deal with this bastard for 20 years. That was the understanding. And uh, let's get rid of these these goddamn bases. At that time, Marcos, unlike today, with this this grotesque uh, historical revisionism you're seeing in the Philippines, which is trying to, I think, quite comedically rehabilitate Marcos. Marcos was uh, universally reviled in the late 1980s and early 1990s almost universally, outside, say, the Ilocano community, being a partial exception, he himself being an Ilocano. Uh, But that leads to the closure of these bases. And Fidel Ramos realizes that he cannot maintain a deep connection with the United States for much of his presidency. He's president from 1992 to 1998. But, But in 1997, 
with the Asian financial crisis, in which you know uh, the Thai bot was overvalued and it crashed and et cetera and so forth, very convoluted series of events. Uh, the Philippine economy takes a very steep nosedive. Uh, the only problem, the only recession I think that was comparable to the one that you saw in 1997-98 is the one you're seeing right now yeah. because of COVID and the economic disruptions that it's caused. Uh, Fidel Ramos realizes that he cannot make the Philippine military into a fully uh, into a force fully committed for national defense. Right? He has to um, turn back to the United States. Now, maybe again, I, I'm not sure what he was thinking about this personally. He might have been happy to turn back to the United States, but whether he was glad to do it or not at that stage, he really had no choice. He couldn't modernize the military because the economy was in a doldrums. Therefore, he begins negotiations for the Visiting Forces Agreement, which is signed under his successor, uh, Joseph Estrada, in 1999. But Ramos was the one who really pushed that policy forward and does the key negotiating. And Estrada just basically uh, formalized it, I think, by and large. So he's very important as a figure because he constantly sustains the special relationship between the military and the United States, albeit in altering guises. In the 1980s, he does it through uh, sustaining the U.S. on the basis. In the 1990s, he does it through visiting forces, the visiting forces agreement and operations that are conducive to interoperability. Interoperability meaning the integration okay. of foreign military forces into the U.S. defense establishment. The, through and, training. And, of yeah. course, not long after this, um, the the... 9/11 and sort of uh, counterterrorism will will play a huge role in um, kind of U- U.S. Mm-hmm. strategic global approach and uh, and of course in 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 the Philippines. Um, what is the what is the um, Philippine military the, the AFP think about uh, uh, counterinsurgency in general and how um, how do they um, channel this against um, Muslim and, and communist um, uh, insurgencies uh, mm-hmm. domestically. Absolutely. So what begin, what happens very shortly after uh, the 9-11 attacks, there is this, I, I'm sure you remember this as I do, uh, a statement from the White House that you're either with us or against us, and uh, one has to side right. openly and blatantly with the United States in the war on terror. All kinds of political elites in the Philippines use that statement and that policy. Indeed, it wasn't just a statement; there was there was a political a political structure behind it. Certainly, a policy structure behind it. Uh, use that policy to uh, gain benefits from the United States or deepen pre-existing benefits from from the United right. States. So what occurs is that uh, the the kind of joint exercises between the United States and the Philippine military accelerate with the blessing of then President Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, because uh, Arroyo understands, as the Philippine military understands, that American military aid, material training, uh, monetary, is not just going to be limited to combating terrorism. You can turn all these goodies against things like communists, yeah. things like political dissidents. And indeed, we do know this, that Arroyo used U.S. aid, U.S. support to um, assassinate a number of political activists in the Philippines in the early 2000s. Uh, this is well documented by any number of human rights groups, uh, domestic and international. The, what, so, what, I guess, yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's, it's tough to calculate this, but what... What part of it is the the sort of financial purse strings, and what part of it is sort of like you know the the sort of political and mm-hmm. ca- the capital the the kind of like what how does the how are they thinking about I mean are they and they are they explicitly creating um, sort of missions and 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 uh, initiatives to to uh, garner a larger share because I'm, I'm guessing with the with the with the basis going away that there's a there's also cash flow mm-hmm. is, is sort of the, the Philippine military is, I guess, talk about its budget and how it, um, and its foreign and domestic and how that uh, expects and contrasts. Sure, sure. 
Sure. So uh, there is a formal budget, which is uh, comparatively speaking rather low if you look at the, the, the sheer numbers. But behind this open okay. budget, these uh, you know publicly supported numbers are all kinds of resource streams and yeah, illicit, yeah. indeed I would say illicit uh, monetary and material streams that can easily translate into monetary profits. I again I don't have uh, evidence for this, but I'm. I'm almost sure that the Pentagon or people within the U.S. defense establishment understand that some of the weapons we send over to the Philippines are sold on the black market. Rifles, recoilless rifles, rocket propelled grenades, even yeah, and who knows? You know, in the same way a shop owner knows like a certain that. amount of your stuff is going to be shoplifted or like you, you, have, to, you have to know that. Like, Indeed. Indeed, indeed. They, they understand that and they allow that to occur because they know that the Philippine military budget is very low and a lot of profit, a lot of empowerment actually comes through uh, illicit activities. In other words, Philippine military units acting as protection for multinational corporations that have subsidiaries or branches operating in the okay. archipelago, particularly in Mindanao. I mean, it's no accident that the Philippine military is most heavily concentrated in Mindanao. Most of its special forces, too, are in Mindanao, because that's where the corporate plantation uh, mining booms are occurring. And that is where the Philippine military tends to cluster, because it can offer protection. And indeed, because insurgencies are occurring, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty convenient. That's the site of the Islamic yeah. insurgency yes. and the site of this yes. massive sort of yes. basket. Yeah. Communist. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So the communist insurgency in the east of Mindanao, Muslim insurgencies in the west of Mindanao yeah. increase the price of protection. If these insurgencies end, Philippine military units cannot charge or cannot impose themselves to the degree that they otherwise could have. In this sense, you see a tremendous similarity with places like Timur and Aceh in Indonesia in the late 1990s, whereby the TNI, Tentara Nacional Indonesia, used the insurgencies to enrich itself uh, illicitly doesn't that, doesn't, and large. And doesn't that, um, yes. I mean, I'm perhaps I'm being, I'm, being, I'm being intentionally naive here, but doesn't that mess with the incentive? Like, do, is there an incentive to not end these? I think so. I do think that these counterinsurgencies have been institutionalized, as they were yeah. in Aceh, as they were in Timor. They, there is an interest, and again, uh, Jeff Robinson has written about this marvelously on the Indonesian case, on the Indonesian side. It's less studied, I think, in the Philippines. But yes, I do think the Muslim and communist insurgencies have been institutionalized. Uh, it simply would yeah. be too unprofitable to see them end. And indeed, Duterte, when he comes in in 2016, tries to end the communist insurgency, but he's overruled by the military. There can be no negotiation. There is only fighting until victory. Uh, you see similar uh, similar kinds of dynamics, I think, in okay. Burma, where the Tamedo, the armed forces in, in Burma, don't want to end, uh, say, the insurgency in Kachin state, because there's a huge illicit uh, conflict uh, rent that can be extracted in terms of jade mining and, and the flow of this jade. Right. Not, not to send, not, uh, not to say that the raising the central um, importance of the military um, of the, uh, as as a, as, yes, a, as a yes. you know a, a stakeholder of the girder that supports this the yes. country, right? Quite so. I mean, it it has become their raison d'être, the AFP. And again, one doesn't want to make the analogy too strongly, but certainly in, in, in Burma, I do see counterinsurgency has become the raison d'etre of these militaries, albeit on a more limited scale in the Philippines than in, than in Burma. But yeah. essentially, the profits that flow from conflict, the profits of violence are very difficult to give up, to relinquish and to diminish. Therefore, Violence must continue. So, uh, Duterte seems like an, uh, uh, a place to kind of put a bow on this. And, and if, because as an argument that you're making is that, uh, you know, we can we can be um, sort of the bright and shiny objects of of like a Duterte or a Trump are kind of we can get distracted by them as you know this makes all the difference in 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 the way that mm. uh, 
um, events are going to unfold. But um, I mean, and, I mean, in some ways, these are these are they're much more durable and 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 long lasting. But they also, but maybe Duterte does does he? And I think you even mentioned that he exposes some of the underlying truths of the relationship between the U.S. and the Philippine military that were perhaps less overstated, or, or how, how do you think he, he factors into this calculus? Yes, yes. Certainly he himself, coming from a peripheral part of the Philippine archipelago, he was far less integrated into the national elite than even uh, Ferdinand Marcos, who spends 20 yeah. years in Manila politics before he becomes president. Yeah, he uses that outsider he status. Mayor to of his, yeah. City. Indeed, indeed. Mayor of Davao City, which is at the yeah. extreme periphery in southeast uh, Mindanao, the extreme periphery of the Philippine archipelago. And in in eastern Mindanao, you have a deep communist NPA presence. And because they are a very well, highly motivated, rather well trained, I would say also, armed force, the New People's Army, the communist New People's Army, he cannot just rule over them. He actually does business, does deals. He tells uh, various corporations it's okay, he tells Japanese and Chinese corporations, it's okay, you can invest in Davao City because I'll talk to the NPA. The NPA know who I am and they will extract less protection money from you than they would if you were dealing in an, dealing with another mayor in another city. So he has a very deep and interesting relationship with the NPA. But when he jumps, directly jumps, almost directly, he has a brief stint as a congressman in the late 90s, but it's not... I think, profound to his political worldview and formation. But when he almost directly jumps from the mayor of Davao City into Malacan Young Palace as president of the Philippines, he encounters another armed force that he cannot control, and that is the armed forces oh. of the Philippines. They tell him very directly how, do, again, not, not that directly, perhaps, but there are winks and <laughs> right. nods and things like this, that we want, we want you to continue the war against the NPA. And he has. I mean, it, it's continued. The major peace initiatives that you saw in the first year of his presidency pretty much collapsed by about 2018. And I don't, I don't see them coming back. I think that AFP pressure to see the insurgency, the counterinsurgency continue was the definitive uh, factor. And um, uh, However much Duterte has consolidated his power, far more than, than say, Trump in the United States, his ability to co-opt congressmen, senators, uh, the press uh, is much, much deeper and more impressive. He is a dictator, no question. But the military has Remains. areas that remain under its domain. And it has fenced off wide sections of the national uh, debates, national discussions, and international discussion that would be hard to unravel. Duterte has tried to do it several times. I I haven't seen it. It hasn't succeeded thus far. And again, one doesn't want to venture too much into speculation. But I don't know that it that it will. The yeah. the relationship is too institutionalized and too deep between the U.S. and the AFP for it to be unraveled in a single six-year presidential term. That's so um. Nasrab, you you've been um, this is real. This is really interesting stuff. Uh, tell tell us about Thank when you. um, are you working on a monograph uh, of the Philippine military? Indeed, right? yes. Indeed, yes. The Philippine military is uh, is going to be a big part of it. But I'm also as it's as it's developing when one initiates projects and they develop over time, uh, it's kind of turning into a broad historical sociology sure. of militaries in post-colonial Southeast Asia. So I'm looking at uh, the Philippines, certainly, but also uh, Indonesia, Thailand, and Burma. So it's a very, I think we've had so many wonderful, broad historical sociologies of early modern Southeast Asia, say works by Victor Lieberman, uh, Tony Reed, and uh, the Andayas yeah. recently releasing a very big, big book on early modern Southeast Asia. Uh, and of course, older works by uh, Georges Coide and uh, Oliver Walters. These books very interestingly analyze broad historical sociological themes in early modern Southeast Asia. 
When it comes to modern Southeast Asia, in particular post-1945 Southeast yeah, Asia. Yeah, I can get siloed I in sort of national need, history, kind of, yeah. Sure, sure. I think we do need a book on these broader uh, multi-country themes. Admittedly, I don't include things like Vietnam or Singapore, which have substantial militaries, but these militaries have remained subordinate to political parties and subservient to political parties right through. Which is kind of incredible um, in like the Vietnam case, right? Like it's a, yeah. it's, it's, it's its own remarkable story Indeed. of how that happened. But, um, uh, so what, what, what if, if, um, um, if people want to do, is there a website? Are there other, you've got, you've got stuff in modern Asian studies, journal of economic and social history, sure. Southeast Asia research, Kyoto sure. review of Southeast Asia, where else should, uh, should they look mm-hmm. if, uh, if, uh, they want to hear more? Yeah, I do have a piece on the Philippine military's operations in the Muslim South coming out with the journal of Asian studies in February. Awesome. Congrats. I also have That's a, a big chapter get. in an edited volume. Yes, thank you. <laughs> it wasn't easy, I have to say. <laughs> it, I, I pulled it off, you know. I think I think they were very amenable to it because there isn't very much published on the Philippines in the Journal of Asian Studies. True. So they they were more open to the contribution of a field that is well neglected. I think the Southern Philippines doesn't get the attention it deserves. So that's coming out in February. Before that, I have a chapter in an edited volume, which I contributed to. A book, uh, put to, an edited volume put together by Peter Carey and Pradi Schnur on race and colonial wars in the 19th, in 19th century Southeast Asia. And that is examining the martial race theory in the southern Philippines. Uh, I've also written uh, journalistic pieces uh, for Forsi, Forces of Renewal for Southeast Asia. That's available on Google fairly easily. Uh, that was that's a platform, a kind of online academic blog, if you wish, uh, organized by Pawin Chachawang Pongpan, who is a Thai political dissident who has fled to Japan, who fled to Japan after the 2014 Thai coup. I've also written uh, some things for them, and I have uh, a piece in the Diplomat on uh, the U.S. Uh, Philippine military relationship. So yeah, I see. You see your your, your name is much more eminently Googleable than than mine. You get lots of football players if you Google me, um, <laughs> <laughs> or the world systems historian there Eric is, Jones from the nineteen seventies. <laughs> <laughs> there aren't too many mess robots of audience that I know of. Yeah, so it, that's the advantage of having an unpronounceable yeah, that's name. Right. Thanks, mom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, uh, again, it's a, it's a pleasure, and um, yeah, keep us uh, and and then and come back when your book comes out. We'd like to hear more. Happily, happily, I'd love to do an yes, event please. in the future <laughs> once once we'll things come sure. back to normal. Hopefully. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank we'll you. Talk thank you very soon. much. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Bye. We'll do. Take care. Bye.